Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Senior Lecturer at Queensland University of Technology, Anthony Shield. Thanks for tuning in to episode 141 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm delighted to get on uh, Dr. Anthony Shield, who is a senior lecturer at Queensland University of Technology. So anyone that knows any of um, Dr. Shield's work or any of his any of his group's work, you'll know that it focuses a lot around uh, hamstrings. So obviously, uh, naturally, the, the podcast goes in that direction. Um, so still a lot of debate around, especially Nordics, as, a, as an injury prevention or injury reduction exercise. So um, we obviously go into a lot of detail with regards to why you would use the Nordics and maybe alternatives which, um, which are just as useful. And also an interesting um, chat around uh, function uh, and functional exercises and how um, Anthony defines them and where he may use that term and where he may not use that term. So Anthony highlights uh, a lot of work done by his team. Um, there's too many to mention. Um, seems like a growing team all the time, but definitely check them out um, on, on ResearchGate or on Twitter or wherever um, and, um, and grab hold of their work because there's loads of great stuff. If I was to use the term functional, I wouldn't describe the Nordic as functional. I, I think of the Nordic exercise as structural. It causes some really positive structural changes within the muscles, which are highly likely to be involved in injury protection. So just before we get into the episode with Anthony, uh, I just want to say a massive thanks to Vald Performance, makers of the Nord Board, for sponsoring this episode today. So Dr. Shields and Dr. Opar, who both obviously Anthony on this um, on this podcast and, and David Opar on, on, the, on a previous podcast, both the brains behind uh, the Nord board, so it's kind of fitting that uh, that Vald, the makers of the Nord board, are sponsoring this episode today. So if you are interested in anything to do with the Nord board or the groin bar, which we, we chat about also on the podcast, uh, which is coming up, um, you can go over to valdperformance.com um, and all the information will be on there. And you can check them out on Twitter at the underscore Nord board. So also sponsoring this episode today is Coach Me Plus. So Coach Me Plus is an athlete management platform based on the east coast of the US. So athlete management platform uh, bringing lots of different data streams uh, into one place. Um, I've had an updated um, demo of their of their software. It looks very very cool um, and a lot more intuitive, which is fantastic. Um, so if you want to check them out, get to CoachMePlus.com. Um, and I'm sure it'll be a, definitely a, um, a system that is going to come into prevalence as more practitioners are getting more and more data streams from HRV to GPS to um, heart rate to uh, subjectives, etc. So make sure you check them out and uh, massive thanks to them. So over to the podcast with uh, Dr. Anthony Shields and I hope you enjoy. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure in speaking to Dr. Tony Shield. So welcome to the podcast, Tony. Thank you, Rob. 
It's good to have you, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are and what you are up to at the minute, do you just want to give us a little bit of a background on you? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm an exercise scientist from the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Queensland. And uh, I've got a uh, – my educational background is uh, I have Bachelor of Human Movement Studies, and really it's means exercise science for those who are not familiar with that term. I uh, did my PhD uh, – looking at neural adaptations to strength training. And I'm formerly a, a strength coach, although I'm old enough to have started my strength coach work uh, well before it became particularly professional. Um, I'm also, on, given the research work that we do, I'm possibly the person most to blame for the Nord board, which means <laughs> I, I should declare that. And whenever I speak to people, I always declare that I have a, uh, a link uh, to the Nord board and the company that, that – um, has commercialized it. Uh, but I w what I would say on that issue is that I'm also very, very heavily biased by level one evidence. And uh, there's some uh, significant level one evidence that we'll chat about today. So I mean, we, we spoke about it beforehand and I didn't really know the, the ins and outs of the, the relationship, but just want to give us a little bit of a, a snapshot of where the Nordball came from and your relationship yeah. as a whole within the business. Yeah, sure. So, um, Back in 2007, uh, a paper by Arnie Arneson and colleagues came out and it was a non-randomised trial, an intervention, which had Nordics and hamstring stretching. And so uh, it showed with a fairly large-scale study over several years that teams who employed the Nordic were significantly less likely to suffer hamstring strains. There was something like a 60%, 65% reduction in hamstring injuries. And in this paper, which sort of opened my eyes uh, to the possibility of reducing hamstring strain, and prior to that, I'd never really had any interest in injury prevention research, it had a, um, a line drawing of a man holding another man's ankles and uh, one of them was doing the Nordic exercise. And so as soon as I saw that, I felt that it was an exercise that might have limited uptake or it certainly wasn't an exercise that appealed to me simply because I like feedback uh, with my resistance training. So if I'm going to lift something, a barbell, whatever, I want to know um, how much I'm lifting. But with someone holding your ankles, you're rather deprived of feedback. But having used load cells frequently in my PhD work and prior to that even uh, as an undergrad, it just struck me that this was an exercise that was begging for load cells to be added uh, and strapped to the ankles, basically. So uh, the idea came along then, and then subsequently was able to get some support from uh, part of my university called Blue Box or QUT Blue Box, and it's basically a, an arm of the university that tries to commercialise intellectual property. Um, we were very, very fortunate to get some great support from them, which funded some of the early research, which people will have read. Um, so, for example, there's a study, Dave Opar's the senior author on most of these. Uh, we did a reliability study and a, a retrospective study looking at whether or not the device would, be, um, would show us the sorts of strength deficits that we had seen with other research on dynamometry, and it did. And it was also quite reliable, a very similar sort of reliability to the dynamometry, isokinetic dynamometry. And uh, after that, um, we then did the study in the AFL. And again, Dave did a great job leading this study and convincing uh, initially six AFL teams to be a part of it. 
and we followed them for injury. And once we'd conducted that study, Blue Box were reasonably convinced that this was something that, that had some commercial legs. And then we searched for a few years to try and find a commercial partner who would take uh, the IP uh, office for a, for a fee. And in the end, um, we'd already met a guy uh, called Sam James and Sam and his mate Laurie uh, ended up taking on the, the, the IP and they've ultimately formed Valve Performance, which was initially formed just to commercialise a device, but subsequently Valve has grown and it's growing in a few different directions. So um, some people, have, you know, they're in the groin uh, strength testing space at the moment as well, and they're certainly also always looking for other um, avenues in the future. Are you involved with the growing stuff that them guys are doing? Uh, no, not not in any direct okay. way at all. I'm I'm a fascinated spectator, basically. <laughs> Just one thing I want to confirm. I don't want to be presumptuous that people. Um, know what you mean level one yep. research when you mentioned it that you asked what you're interested in just explain yeah. that very quickly okay so with regard to the levels of evidence that we have for any sort of injury prevention intervention we uh, have a, a scale it's often seen as a pyramid and at the very top of the pyramid you have level one evidence and level one evidence um, at the base of level one we have randomized control trials which show that an intervention distributed it randomly in the population or amongst sporting teams, as it often is in sport injury research, um, is more effective than an alternative or a control intervention. And within Level 1 evidence, we also have the systematic reviews. So obviously, if there's a review of multiple randomised control trials and they tend to point in the same direction, i.e. an exercise reduces injury, then that'll... Um, is the most convincing evidence we've got from a scientific perspective. And then we slide down the scale, level two, three, four, and five evidence. And at the bottom of the pyramid, the least convincing evidence is level five evidence, which is expert opinion. And at the end of the day, I appreciate fully that sometimes expert opinion is the best we've got. And certainly if there's an absence of other evidence, then we run with expert opinion and we often think of that Oh, I think of it as conventional practice. So if we look out into the world and imagine we're working in a sport, we don't know much about it. The first thing we've got to find out if we want to help athletes in that sport is to examine what are the conventional training practices right now. Then perhaps over time we can you know, develop better and better techniques and perhaps even do some research on it. But ultimately it's that level one evidence, which if I'm wearing a scientific hat, I have to uh, you know, pay a fair bit of attention to. Do you think with the advent of social media and these kind of mediums that level five is getting more weight than it potentially should do? Um, well, certainly easy to broadcast. and mm -hmm. But having said that, it's, it's equally easy for any academic, any researcher to broadcast as well. So I was actually contemplating this. I've contemplated this numerous times, particularly when you, you get involved in a fight on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and every now and again, uh, we get a bit willing with these fights on Twitter. But I'm I'm of the view that to have the discussion is better than to not have the discussion. Even if it's a disagreement, I, I think it's always best to talk through someone else's argument. Even if you, you totally disagree with them, it's better to understand the argument. So for me, for example, if I'm trying to increase the uptake of 
any sort of particular exercise intervention for injury prevention. I need to know why people don't like the exercise I'm advocating. And it's only then that I could possibly come up with a an explanation that might be more convincing. So, yeah, sure, I think it is easy for people at level five, the expert opinion, to 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 broadcast. And, of course, we've got real experts and then we've got pretend experts as well. And so yeah, even pretend, yeah, pretend experts can broadcast also. However, what I think with Twitter, one of the things with Twitter that tends to sort uh, us out a little bit if you've absolutely got no background in the field at all, you, you'll have a following of five people and three of them are your aunts and uncles and your mum. And when you've got a following of five, then you can say all you like. Um, I don't think it's that harmful. And generally, you know, even the folk that I disagree with uh, who, you know, broadcast widely on Twitter, very often they've got followings of ten to 30,000 people or even 50,000 people. And... They must be doing something right to get there. So I think it's, um, I think generally, you know, Twitter's the one form of social media that I've used. And um, I think the overall effects are much more positive than negative. Good. So just moving on to the next topic and just to give a bit of an overview uh, from, from obviously yourself and a, and a true expert in the field, just wanted to give us a little bit of a, an overview of what we actually know currently about injuries. Yep. Sure. So I think the one thing that we would all agree on is that we just don't know enough. If we if we really knew how to control hamstring strain injuries, or we could all agree to it at least, we would obviously be seeing some significant reductions in injury rates. But all the stats tend to suggest that there's if if in some competitions like the AFL here in Australia, it seems like there's a very, very small drop off in the number reported per club per season. And there's a few different potential explanations for that. But in UEFA soccer, you know, there's that really nice study, Jan Ekstrand and his group, and apologies, I just forgot who the first author is, but anyway, I think it might be Jan, and the injury rate's going up between 2 and 4% a year. Um, and so we all um, recognise that we don't know enough. And I think the other thing we definitely know about hamstring injuries is that there's an enormous amount of disagreement as to how we might best actually contribute to to reversing those trends. Um, what we as a research group have, have concentrated on, we've we basically got, I listed them earlier today, we've about five different research areas that we've uh, had a dabble in or are, are continuing to work in. I think over time, and now Matthew Bourne's PhD work, uh, and you've had Matthew Bourne on your show, um, he's described quite nicely the architectural and the morphological changes in the hamstrings as a consequence of at least two different hamstring exercises. And he actually has a, a third paper um, in review at the moment looking at a, um, a supine bridge exercise and the short-term uh, muscle activation of the, of the bridge. Uh, Ryan Timmons uh, doing his PhD with Dave Opar, you know, one of the most productive and really one of the great um, PhDs in hamstring injury research. Um, he showed the effect of contraction mode on hamstring um, adaptation. So <clears throat> he compared concentric and eccentric dynamometry training and showed that the eccentric training lengthened fascicles and the concentric training shortened fascicles, despite the fact that that 
um, concentric training happened at, at long hamstring lengths. So we know now a little bit more about the impact of exercise selection on some of these adaptations that are useful, not just on architecture, but Matty Bourne's work looked at muscle size as well, where we compared uh, hypertrophic adaptations to Nordics versus a 45-degree hip extension. Um, we've also been ex you know, examining in the past, the pr you know, prospectively, uh, we've looked at the role of eccentric knee flexor strength in AFL in A-League soccer, which is our top-level soccer here in Australia for men, and also in rugby. And Ryan's work, again, uh, added something very nice in that he looked at bicep femoris long head fascicle lengths prospectively, and players with short fascicles were more likely to get injured, and players with low levels of eccentric strength in the soccer and the AFL studies were also more likely to get injured. And... What we were particularly interested in there was the interaction between those um, variables that you can do something about. Uh, obviously, fascicle length is highly trainable and strength is highly trainable. And they interact uh, quite significantly with age and prior injury history so that if you're 18 years old and you've never had an injury, it probably doesn't matter really how strong you are. Basically, according to our AFL study, you're very unlikely to get injured. But if you're 28 and you are weak, then you have a problem. And if you're 28 and you have a prior history of injury, then you have an even bigger problem. And it seems that for these more mature athletes, um, being strong and having long fascicles is of you know, immense value. Um, we're also been interested in the associations between high-speed running variables and hamstring injuries. And so Steve Dewig, for example, from QUT, uh, had that BJSM paper uh, come out uh, some stage last year where we – it's obviously just observational stuff, but we were able to show that a vast majority of the hamstring injuries that occurred occurred in the midst of a high-speed running load spike. And prior to that, Obviously, load spikes had been associated with elevated injury risk, but this was the first one, first study to show that it was um, that hamstrings were also um, at more uh, risk as a consequence of uh, high-speed running volumes over the previous one to four weeks. Um, another contribution that that our groups made is the looking at the role of neuromuscular inhibition in hamstring injury recurrence. And we know that once you get a hamstring injury, they uh, come back more frequently than we'd like. And I think over time, even though we've made a little bit of progress in reducing hamstring injury recurrence rates, certainly here in the AFL, the recurrence rates have gone down over the last decade or so, um, we still probably don't have the perfect rehab. And I think we need to address better the neuromuscular inhibition and I think once we can address neuromuscular inhibition better we will probably have a, another improvement in in hamstring recurrence rates and then I suppose one of the final things that we've been interested in is the effects of fatigue on hamstring function and I think we all understand that someone might have great hamstring strength at the start of a match and then two-thirds of the way through the the game um, perhaps their hamstring strength isn't so great We've done a little bit of work in the past to show that some people lose a lot of eccentric strength as a consequence of repeated sprinting and other people don't lose so much and we don't really understand 
exactly why that's the case. But we do have a couple of studies, one with repeated sprinting that Ryan Timmons did as part of his honours work at QUT some years ago. And we basically showed that there was a reduction, particularly in eccentric strength, and it was associated with a loss of or a reduction in bicep fem uh, surface EMG, whereas the medial hamstring surface EMG uh, didn't seem to decline and certainly wasn't associated with the extent of strength loss. So more recently than that, Steve Dewig did an analogous study with kicking where he had players, athletes in AFL kick 100 drop punt kicks, which is the he had them kick a ball into a net as hard as they could with minimal rest in between the kicks. And he showed some significant reductions in strength, eccentrically again, but also um, bicep femoris and medial hamstring activation dropped. But the extent of the strength loss was again associated with the loss of bicep femoris activation and not associated with the loss of medial hamstring activation. So I think there's something interesting going on there, but to be frank, I really don't have a clue what it is yet. <laughs> no, it's all good, mate. So one thing on the back of what you said at the start about the um, Genex trend study, why is it that, well, from your opinion, why do you think them hamstring rates, injury rates are still going up? Yeah, um, I think that there is some good evidence that the players are training harder and that they're in, well, and I should, when I say that, I know I'm going to get in trouble with Tim Gabbett and various others, but I think that the amount of high-intensity speed work that the players are exposed to is going up, but perhaps they're not developing the base or, gr or gradually improving their capacity to tolerate that. I think that what I see in a lot of elite sport environments. I'm really lucky I, I do get from time to time to travel to Europe and see elite level sporting environments. So I've had the pleasure of visiting a number of English Premier League clubs. And last year, I actually had the great fortune of going to Germany and visiting uh, Borussia Dortmund and um, Bayern Munich. And then we went on to um, Switzerland and visited there um, a couple of their high-level clubs there as well. Um, what I can see there, in some clubs, players are very much wrapped in cotton wool, and I think the, they're wrapped in cotton wool increasingly because it's hard to get a lot of training in between this high density of match fixtures. And so if you're constantly wrapping people in cotton wool, I think that you're not preparing them well for you know, the very frequent exposure that they do end up getting to high-speed running in their games. But, of course... It's got to be probably more than that. And so I think it's the $64,000 question. If someone comes up with the answer to that one, I think they'll do well. <laughs> From on your travels, what do you what have you found the difference between the training mentality of the Europeans and the Aussies? Well, I think that when I come to Europe, then we mostly visit soccer clubs. And here in Australia, we've got a mix of AFL, rugby and uh, our own Australian soccer. I think what we see in Europe is very much the same as in Australian soccer, but in Europe they have the greater match fixture problems because, you know, we, we I was talking to some guys from Leicester City, you know, late last year and they told me about having to play eight games in 21 days. So that never happens here in Australia. Our Our players typically play one match per week and it's on the weekend. 
Uh, there sometimes can be a short turnaround in some of the games because in rugby league in particular, they might play a Thursday night game. And, of course, if you happen to have a Sunday game the week before, then there's not much recovery. Um, but the differences that I see, I would sort of characterise it as fear. I, I hear of fearful attitudes to eccentric exercise, as an example, in some clubs, and I've noted just anecdotally high injury rates also at those clubs. And then at other clubs, they can be characterised as having little fear of eccentric work because they dived in, did some eccentric work and built a repeated bout effect in their players and then they've subsequently not had much problem with it. And so I, I really think that that fear of soreness, which is essentially wrapping players in cotton wool again, is, is a big part of the, the differences between clubs who embrace eccentric conditioning and clubs who don't. As always, just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Anthony. Hope you're enjoying part one. Just want to say a massive thanks to Force Decks, who are sponsoring this episode of the podcast today. So if you don't know anything about Force Decks, I would encourage you to check out episode 139 of the podcast with Daniel Cohen, who is one of the co-founders of Force Decks. Um, and anyone that's doing any sort of jump monitoring, um, definitely check that out because that will tell you a lot of what you need to know with regards to using um, using force plates and in particular force decks for that type of um, that type of monitoring so just before we get into part two um, there's a new article up on the website on strengthofscience.com and that is from Gavin Pratt who is a performance manager at Axos working in China so really interesting um, article from Gavin that shows how he programs around the Chinese system which is uh, definitely interesting so if you want to check that out just go on to strengthofscience.com so I hope you enjoyed part two with Anthony and I'll speak to you soon next next thing I wanted to ask you about and it was um, pretty much on topic with a few going back to the Twitter debate was uh, around functional exercises just want to give your opinion on that term as a whole and then we'll kind of jump off from there yeah sure so i'm um a bit of a uh english language nazi in that i i constantly <laughs> challenge people to use terms that actually have a well-defined meaning and to use those terms correctly now when it comes to you know functional exercise or functional training i've never been able to find a really strict definition of it and I see inconsistencies in the way that that term is used. So some people, for example, they'll criticize certain exercises for not being functional, and that's often a reason why they won't use them in their own programs. But then the same people will show you another exercise, which to my mind is absolutely equally not functional or dysfunctional as you might like to describe it. And so I just think it's predominantly a problem with the definition of it. Uh, I think that the term functional is synonymous with the term specificity. And if we talk about sports specificity, I think we can understand that we might all have a slightly different opinion on what exercises are the most specific exercises for a certain task. So let's say you have a shot putter, for example. And some people will uh, notice that most shot putters do heavy bench press. It's one of their predominant pushing exercises that they do. And, of course, 
it is in some ways specific to shot put, but it's in some ways rather not specific. It's not posture specific. It's not velocity specific because the guys tend to lift really heavy loads. It's not laterality specific because it's two arm movements rather than just using one at a time. So there's a heap of ways in which it's not specific and there's some ways in which it is. At the end of the day, calling it non-functional is not going to stop shot putters from doing it. And I certainly, I don't use the term very much, but I do understand that, you know, most people would regard uh, lying down as something that's not particularly functional if your sport actually involves standing up. But, uh, yeah, I think that the big problem I have is that, that the lack of really strict definition, if we were to use sports-specific uh, as a term instead, it's slightly better defined, although there's a lot of circuitous definitions for sports specificity. But essentially, it, it, both terms are, t- are really referring to the extent of transfer that you can get from the training exercise into the competition. And so whether that's transfer from the gym out onto the sporting field or transfer from the training paddock out onto the the actual match pitch, we really, by having highly functional exercises or highly sports-specific exercises, we would hope to maximise transfer. And I think if we use each of those terms, the term transfer is something that we can understand fairly well. Um, Something that transfers well will have a more significant impact on your match day performance. So I think out of all those terms, that's the one that I prefer to use. So this is often a common argument for not doing Nordics because it's not functional. What do I mean, you've touched on that a little bit there, why then people may think that given what it looks like? Yeah, sure. What, yeah, absolutely. I, and, and you know what? I don't use the word functional myself except to talk about it in these sorts of contexts when we're talking about how, how it's used. Um. If I was to use the term functional, I wouldn't describe the Nordic as functional. I, I think of the Nordic exercise as structural, and we'll talk about later the adaptations that we know that the Nordic causes. It causes some really positive structural changes within the muscles, which are highly likely to be involved in injury protection. Um, the I'll give you an example or another couple of examples. We, we've got guys who will argue that the Nordics are not functional, yet I've met a couple of people who argue that it is functional. And from my personal perspective, I just try not to use the term, but I, I would tend to think that if I had to use the term, I'd say, no, Nordics aren't functional. They're not highly sports-specific. They're not sports-specific to sprinting. They don't look anything like sprinting. But we've had folks who really are critical of the Nordic and won't use Nordics, but at the same time, they'll advocate an exercise where a player lies on their back and extends their hip with their ankle held in a brace that's attached to a pulley. And so lying on your back is, you know, nowhere near uh, posturally more specific than kneeling and falling forward. Um, We'll also have folk who advocate that they won't ever use Nordics, but they'll advocate a side plank and... And this has got to be the least functional thing that you, you could do as well as a very low-intensity <laughs> exercise. But perhaps they'll advocate a side plank whilst pulling with their free arm on a pulley. And I just see them all as equally non-functional, and I'm not suggesting for a minute that none of them have any value. Um, we probably need a fair bit more research on those two examples I've given. We, we certainly have a lot of research on Nordics already. But, um, yeah, I think that... The, I really have a problem with the inconsistencies where those folk who use the term functional seem to 
to apply it in a very sporadic manner. So given the work that you mentioned 10 minutes ago with, with all the guys that you've, um, you've got over there, why is there such a big debate and why is there still this apparent stigma around, around using Nordics and many, many Twitter conversations off the back of that? Well, I think we've got to probably understand the evolution of the strength and conditioning profession in, in, in a way because if you're old enough, um, and by the way, I can't remember the 70s really. I'm not quite that old, but I was alive. But if you're old enough to remember the 80s, then obviously you've read a little bit about the 70s. And, and my understanding is that really in the 1970s and 80s, the strength and conditioning profession was developing, particularly in the United States and particularly under the leadership of the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And certainly throughout the 80s, the NSCA literature was amongst um, the very small amount of literature that me and my mates could get hold of if we were interested in strength uh, designing strength programs. We grabbed hold of the NSCA um, you know, just their journal. It wasn't a journal of strength and conditioning research at that stage. It was uh, more their, their practitioner's journal. And we would grab that from time to time and, and have a look in it. But you got the feeling that this, uh, this new profession was trying to differentiate itself in many ways from a fitness industry. And a fitness industry at the time, particularly in the 70s and 80s, that was probably fairly largely influenced by bodybuilding. And so I think that Strength and conditioning has had to differentiate itself from bodybuilding, and one way it does that is it has far less reliance upon isolating muscles. Uh, there's far more use of movements that involve you know, multiple joints at a time. So we see during this time much less use of machines, much less use of single joint exercises. We start to see the multi-joint movements and particularly what I call the platform lifts, all the sorts of lifts you need a platform for are being used much more. And strength and conditioning coaches differentiate themselves from fitness instructors uh, very largely by the fact that they actually have coaching uh, expertise. They can coach a complicated lift like a power clean, whereas in the fitness industry, well, we have a high reliance upon machines and, and it's pretty easy to show someone how to use a pin-loaded uh, chest press. I think it, also at this time we've got much more emphasis on adaptations other than hypertrophy. People are starting to realise, and there's early research in the 80s in particular, looking at non-hypertrophic adaptations to strength training, and this appreciation, particularly of the neural adaptations, leads to a, a much better understanding of how we can make exercises a bit more specific and transfer a little bit more uh, to certain tasks. So I think the other thing that we see, you know, during this time also, one other thing that, that happens in the strength and conditioning world is that people have realised that three sets of 10 is not the only prescription you could ever use. And so there's a departure from this classic sort of burger, Richard Burger's three sets of 10, and a use of, uh, you know, different sets and repetition schemes. And so all of that's really, really sensible. Um, and, and it's hard to argue against. Certainly some of the worst programs I've ever seen in my life were Programs written for athletes by bodybuilders. So a javelin thrower would simply get an upper body bodybuilding program and a high jumper would get a lower body bodybuilding program. And it's, you know, clearly both of those are ridiculous. But I think when you take some of those developments a little bit too far, then you end up with a mantra like, I train movements, not muscles. And I always had a problem with that. I absolutely have no problem with the idea that someone trains movements, but we've also got to train muscles. So 
I'm quite happy with it if we say we train movements and muscles because that makes much more sense to me. But once you have a mantra like I train movements and not muscles, I think then you're going to have a problem sometimes in accepting that there is this evidence for a single joint exercise, not too many of them. Um, and, you know, I can understand fully that, that a, a strength and conditioning coach would see it as a travesty if you're standing on the middle of their platform or if you're standing in a power rack and you're doing curls, you know, bicep curls. Um, it's very hard to see too many reasons why an athlete needs to do bicep curls except for their ego. And so when evidence comes out for the Nordic, then it goes against so many of those trends that we have uh, seen in the strength and conditioning field. So I think that's well, that's one reason for the stigma. Do you think people use that term to try to, I mean, maybe uh, alluded to it there, but elevate themselves above the PTs? This is what I do, that's what they do? Yeah, sure, uh, absolutely. And I think um, we've always got to be careful when we do that. I mean, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly that strength and conditioning coaches – uh, have have to have so many more skills than a fitness instructor. I've done both of them um, many, many years ago. And as I said before, not in any particularly professional manner. I, I didn't make a heap of money from my essence or my strength coach days. And um, I think 2003 or 2002 was, was you know, when last I actually had a job uh, or four jobs uh, doing little bits and pieces working with athletes. But I think sometimes... When you're trying to differentiate yourself really, really hard, you sometimes won't accept that every now and again, for example, even though three sets of 10 isn't what you have to do and it is overused, it could potentially on occasion actually be a reasonable prescription. Um, it, and I think that, yeah, there's a bit of a, a rejection of some training habits simply because, yes, a fitness instructor might use this. I'm a strength, a strength coach, therefore I, I'm more advanced than that and I won't use those methods that perhaps could be used in a, a fitness centre environment. Just completely off topic now, but do you find with the publicised lack of jobs in the strength and conditioning community that people are moving more towards academia, probably like you did back in the, back in the day? Yeah, I think certainly everyone who loves this field has a decision to make. And when for me, um, I had a fair idea when I was doing my PhD and I, I finished my undergrad career and I thought I wanted to do a PhD and I figured that that would probably lead to academia. However, I was open-minded to the possibility of working in the strength and conditioning field. And in fact, a, um, a colleague of mine was all set to take on the head of high performance role at a rugby league team towards the end of my PhD and he asked me if I'd, I'd go with him as his strength coach and I considered it uh, and I, I was probably going to do it and in the end the, uh, the rugby league team folded. It had a habit of folding every 10 years or so and, uh, and, and he didn't have his own position. Now that, that said to me what everyone in the strength and conditioning field knows already and that job security is, a, is the toughest part of the SNC world, and and then also there's the the limited pay that that comes along with doing your apprenticeship, and sometimes these apprenticeships are many years long. So you need to have a job to uh, support your habit, and your habit is strength and conditioning. Uh, and a mate of mine many years ago, he was a 
a strength coach for one of the the AFL teams uh, here in Australia, and he earned something like ten thousand Aussie dollars a year, and had to work at a gym so that he could afford to to maintain the luxury of this strength and conditioning job. It looked great on his CV, but it, it wasn't paying the bills. So, yes, yeah, so look, I think sometimes if you it's difficult to get into academia because there's not a million positions around. But once you're in there, it's actually much more secure. So I personally, being a fairly, um, I'm, a lo- I'm, I'm opposed to risk taking, I would always have ended up in academia rather than the strength and conditioning field, whereas others I know who just love the field, they're prepared to take that risk. And, of course, you know, some are amazingly successful. Uh, some end up having to you know, find other work so that they can support uh, their, their strength and conditioning uh, habit, if you like. So I think it's a, un, it's a, it's a tough area in which to, to get a gig. So one, one last thing that I want to ask you about, and that is research that's coming that looks alternatives to, to Nordics. Um, I'm guessing that's also not a criticism, but a discussion point with you. Well, if I don't, you know, what's, what else is out there if I don't want to do Nordics? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, for me, uh, a really significant part of the work that we do, and if you read carefully anything that Matthew Bourne has published, uh, particularly his exercise selection paper, again, that's a BJSM paper from last year, and the um, his training study with the Nordics compared to the hip extensions, um, we're huge advocates of hip extension movements and that's um, something that's lost on a lot of people who, who, not a lot, but there's a few people out there who'll say that my association with the Nord board indicates that I'm biased towards Nordics. And it'll also, they'll suggest that it indicates that I'm also biased towards eccentric uh, exercise over, for example, isometric exercise. But um, I've got news for people that the Nord board can test strength eccentrically and isometrically. So that argument's totally irrelevant to me. If I even if I'm biased by the the, the concept of the Nord board, um, with regard to other exercises, you know, in Matthew Bourne's studies, we've ex- explored these hip-based movements predominantly because we felt initially we could get a better effect than with Nordics. So we initially, going back even five six years ago, we had EMG stuff that we just did in the lab. And we weren't interested early on in publishing this, but we just did some EMG work and showed that the medial hamstrings were, were highly active in the uh, Nordic and that the lateral hamstrings, by contrast, were, were significantly less active. So we wanted to find out what what means can we, how do we activate lateral hamstrings more? And the reason for wanting to do that is that the lateral hamstrings or the bicep fem long heads, the one that get, gets injured about 80% of the time when you're sprinting. So we found it strange that the Nordic worked so well, given that it was predominantly a, a medial hamstring exercise. And now we know that it's predominantly a semitendinosus exercise, along with bicep femoris shorthead. And indeed, um, when you do a Nordic and you train for 10 weeks, about half of the hypertrophy you get in all of the hamstrings comes from semitendinosus changes alone. So that might be seen by many to be a reason not to do Nordics, but Eric Vitrow and Jock Shermans and colleagues have produced um, some nice evidence to suggest that semitendinosus use might protect bicep femoris 
uh, from strain. And so even if the Nordic uh, works, it, it, we've shown that it increases the lengths of the fascicles within the bicep femoris long head, and we've shown previously that that's a good thing when it comes to reducing injury rates. But we um, also now have shown that it's a very, very good exercise at increasing the size of semitendinosus. And so the protective effects of Nordics might be mediated by those adaptations and or others. There's certainly other possibilities. And recently the, the possibility that there are changes in the collagen uh, expression at the myotendinous junction. So you basically might be swapping out some of the collagen that's less suitable and incorporating more collagen that's more injury resistant into the muscle tendon junction. So there's some work by Jacobson and colleagues from um, Denmark that has uh, shown that relatively recently. But at the end of the day, we know that lots of different exercises could stimulate these adaptations. So for example, with the hip extension exercise that we've explored quite a bit up until now, uh, it is also a very good exercise for increasing semitendinosus size. So we can tick that box in a number of different ways. We feel that you can increase, well, we've shown that you can increase bicep femoris fascicle lengths with a hip extension exercise. And we think that we can make hip extension exercise even more effective if we make it eccentric only. So if we, we sort of manage or eccentrically biased, so if we were to lower a load with one leg but lift it with two, for example, I think we would get more benefit in terms of fascicle lengthening, and that's certainly something that we will have a go at at some stage in the future. We're just trying to you know, get some money for that because the, the MRI side of it's expensive. But, yeah, there are a heap of other options. It's just that at the moment they don't have the evidence base. So I can understand a strength and conditioning coach would not want to just use Nordics. It seems ridiculous to only use Nordics, and, indeed, even the literature that advocates Nordics, it's no reason for a Nordic-only approach. And I don't know any of the authors of those papers who say that there should be a Nordic-only approach. Indeed, I'm quite happy to write programs and not use Nordics at all, but I just feel that they don't quite have the evidence base, so I feel like I need to use Nordics as, as a part of a program, but, but not as the whole. Perfect. Happy days. So anyone that doesn't want to know more about your work and your group's work, what's the best place to, where's the best place to go? ResearchGate? Yeah, ResearchGate's all right. Um, yeah, look, look, my colleagues okay. are, are better at updating it than I am. Um, yeah, ResearchGate, if you look for Matthew Bourne or for me or for Ryan Timmons, I think Bourne and Timmons are um, updating it fairly regularly. And I think also just from the perspective, you know, if I can just put my Australian hat on and speak for, for other Australian groups, um, so Dave Opar is a former student of mine, but he's now at Australian Catholic University, leading some really, really fascinating stuff down there. And so if you um, were to follow Dave and, and check out also the work of Jack Hickey, Jack's one of Dave's PhD students, and look out in the future for some work from a guy called Narav Manir. Um, he's going to be doing some fascinating stuff. And then um, uh, Josh Ruddy, and uh, you know, just a number of other uh, students at Dave's are doing some fascinating stuff at the moment. So I think we, we're doing some good work, but um, at the moment I think the, the balance of outputs coming from Dave's group, they're doing some great stuff. Again, just going off topics, very one last thing. Do you guys, as, as um, supervisors of these, kind of Jack and Matty and things like that, do you push them to be on social media and push their work that way? 
Oh, is that something that they do completely off the run back? Yeah, no, it's it's more the other way. So um, the, the way that it happened initially, I think it might have been that Dave and Morgan Williams, Morgan's our colleague from Wales, who was uh, initially I met him here when he was at, at ACU in Melbourne. But we, um, I wasn't on Twitter for a long time and then Morgan put me on Twitter. He said, Tony, I've taken the liberty. And, uh, and I thought, <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, I'll give this a crack. But um, I think that young people, they're generally better adopters than, than middle-aged farts like me. And I was initially very reticent and uh, I, I try to stay away from a lot of modern technology. But um, I, I encourage, like if anyone's not on Twitter, I do encourage them. And even my undergrad students, I encourage them to go on there, uh, not because they're in a position to develop a following, but because they can follow um, important people. They can basically tag onto someone, whether it's me or, or Matty Bourne or Ryan Timmons, they can tag onto them and look at who they follow. And from that, you can learn quite quite interesting stuff. And I know that, um, you know, for example, I try to stay abreast of the hamstring literature, but even that's difficult with all my other duties in at my work. But but Chris Beardsley, for example, on Twitter, just keeps me up to date on, on a heap of general strength and conditioning research, and, and that's excellent. I find myself listening to podcasts, uh, yours and others included. Um, I find uh, it's it's often hard to to find the time for those things, and sometimes Twitter's just your shortcut. And every now and again, you'll find reference to a paper you you absolutely have to read. And and sometimes you'll um, just read the you know the tweet, hundred forty word, hundred forty character version of it. Uh, and, and all I can say about this one is, at least this is a a podcast I won't have to listen to because <laughs> I kept notes. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. And what, what do you know your Twitter um, tag? Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's um, at Das Das. Uh, it's got a. It's not a hyphen. What is it? Das underscore shield. Yeah, Das underscore shield. So um, yeah, people could find me there. Perfect. And and potentially, you know, something? we could have a Twitter fight one day. <laughs> I don't think. Uh... <laughs> They'll be coming your way anyway by the, by the looks of your Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> Keep batting them away. Keep batting them away. No, no, I think good debate's a good thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate you uh, coming on for a chat and, um, and sharing your, your knowledge and expertise. Thank you, Rob. My pleasure. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 141 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Anthony. So don't forget, if you go over to strengthofscience.com, pop your email address and name in there, and you can get lifetime access to a webinar which Dan Baker presented on for strengthofscience.com on strength and power in rugby league and some cool stuff on adolescent athletes as well. So make sure you check that out on strengthofscience.com. So we've got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. Um, Thanks for your continued support and I will speak to you soon.